This morning is February 27th. It's Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is forgiveness. That was as fancy as the title could, could be this morning. I thought about all kinds of different titles, but nothing seemed as apt as forgiveness. I don't have the overhead or the display this morning, and I had a couple slides that I want to refer to just because I can't read my own handwriting if I make notes, and there's a few strict definitions that I want you to get, and I didn't want to paraphrase them. So this morning for forgiveness, uh, or on the topic of forgiveness, I want to turn to Matthew 6 as a place to start. As you uh, turn there, uh, of course Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and the Thompson chain, this is on page 1074. As you turn there, I wanted to, uh, to show you something, or I guess I'm going to read it to you. The definition for forgive, and by the way, to forgive... Forgiveness, uh, forgiven, all those tenses of that, that word are used more than 140 times in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? More than 140 times. We're going to look at the first instance that it occurred and some other things because there's powerful teaching lessons in it. But the New Testament word that is most often used uh, to forgive, it's kind of a strange word. I mean, it may not be strange to Greek scholars. It's strange to me because... It can mean so many different things. You know, when we say forgive, we have one concept in our mind. But the word in Greek is uh, more like uh, aphiomi. Aphiomi. If you want somebody to forgive you, it's aphiomi. Okay, now that's my Texas-Louisiana pronunciation of a Greek word, but you can see it phonetically on the screen, possibly. Um, it comes from a couple words. And one means to send, and the other means to, to go. It's a compound word, and one means to send, and the other means to go. Isn't that interesting? So if you wanted to define it in the most literal possible sense as far as the etymology of the word, it's to send and to go. Well, how on earth does that apply to forgive? Well, look what it means as we move into the context. There's a couple English renderings. One is to forgive. Another might be to forsake, lay aside, leave, let alone, uh, let be, let go, let have, omit, put or send away, remit, suffer or yield up. Now, that would, that's the way that all the different translations have taken it. So if you start with Amplified and move through all of the different translations, that's what you'll see. But what I wanted to do, I took all the Greek lexicons that I could find, uh, that I have access to, and I looked at their phrases, how they sum up the word. And this was really interesting because as we study this today, I'm going to leave that up on the screen and I want you to think about each one of the principles in terms of this. Here's how the uh, definitions were summarized by other experts. Uh, to forgive is to depart from a thing. Isn't that interesting? To depart from it, to leave it behind you. To allow it to expire. And here expires used in the sense of die. Just let it die. Had you ever been in an argument and you thought, man, I wish this guy could just let this die? You're, what you're really asking him for is, could you just forgive it? If it's wrong, please just let it die. Forgive it. Another is to keep no longer. Boy, and that, that's, that's a good one. To keep no longer. Man, would you forgive me? Would you not keep this offense? Please don't hang on to it. Would you just not keep it any longer? Uh, a fourth one. To permit or allow it not to hinder, and then in parentheses, you. See, what is weird is we're going to learn today that unforgiveness doesn't hinder the other person as much as it hinders you. Isn't that weird? Uh, then lastly, 
uh, to lay aside, let alone omit, or yield up a thing. Sometimes forgiveness is not just leaving it behind. Sometimes it's not keeping it any longer, allowing it to die. It's just saying, Lord, I don't really know what to do with this, so I'm giving it up to you. I'm not going to hang on to it anymore. I'm going to yield it up to you. Isn't that interesting? When you start to look at the definition of the word there, it, there are even some clues into how you forgive. Because in this message, there's a real problem. And that's that as I teach this, you can be sitting there going, well, that's great. I know I'm supposed to forgive. And yeah, you just hammered me with a hundred scriptures that say you must forgive. But how do I do it? Well, we're going to get there. That'll be the second half of the message. I want to cover some of this. Let's start with the Lord's Prayer. And every now and then, y'all glance over at the words. If you can't read them, I will probably read this to you several times since I don't have my overhead today. Don't have Kenmore Electric's overhead today. <laughs> okay, Matthew 6. Uh, everybody's familiar with, with this prayer. So starting in, uh, I don't know, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you're praying to God according to the Lord's own prayer, the, the model, if you will, in the Scripture, the format in which we're supposed to learn from, you're supposed to be praying to God for forgiveness, but the prerequisite is that you have already forgiven those that have trespassed against you. Isn't that interesting? He says, Lord, forgive as I have forgiven. Now, forgiven's in a past tense. So that means that you have to have forgiven to be standing there praying to Forgive. Isn't that interesting? He said, well, that's debtors. You know? <laughs> that's, you know, that's if we owe money or something. It's really not. In fact, look at how Luke describes the same thing. Hang a few uh, pages to your right. In Luke 11, look at how Luke translates the same thing or records the same... I say the same event. I imagine Jesus taught on this a lot. I had a really good discussion with the brother this week about some of the various possibilities. When you see the seemingly same or synoptic events in the Word, it's entirely possible that they're not describing the same event, but similar events. I mean, can you imagine if you had to write a book that talked about all the times Eric read from Genesis 3? I mean, two of you could be thinking of two Sundays that are so close, but one phrase be different in there, and then oh my God, there's a contradiction here. No, there's not. We're describing two events that sound very much like the same thing. That's possible. Listen to how Luke records this. Father, uh, this is uh, Luke 11, verse uh, 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Isn't that interesting? Both contain the very same thing. One calls it debtors and said, we've already forgiven them. And the other says, calls it sins and says, forgive us because we forgive everybody else. One says, forgive me because we've already forgiven everyone. The other says, forgive me because I forgive everybody else. In both cases, you see a real relationship though. If you want forgiveness, you have to give forgiveness, don't you? If that couldn't be clear enough, turn to Luke 6. 
since I've already got you in Luke. Now, please don't tune me out and think, oh, I already know all there is to know about forgiveness. I assure you, you don't. (laughs) And if you have it all upstairs, you certainly don't have it in practice. The single biggest hindrance in the church, and I use that word a lot, I know, comes from a bitter root that gets in people. Something happens somewhere in someone's life that they just can't let go of, and the devil works so hard to get it there. I mean, it can be horrible things that daddies did to their kids when they were little, or whatever it might be, okay? And your mind can just run the gamut of all of those things. Unforgiveness stifles the growth of Christians. It it keeps you in a position where you cannot see God's power move. We're going to look at that. There's a reason for it. Uh, God has a spiritual law, if you will, that He lays down in the Scripture. In any case, let's read Luke 6 and then we'll get there. In Luke 6, starting in verse 37, real familiar, but people usually quote this out of Matthew 7. You notice how similar the chapters are between uh, Luke and Matthew sometimes? People wonder if they were laid side by side or if Luke... Because Luke wasn't an eyewitness to these accounts. Maybe Luke... uh, used the other books as a template. People wonder that. Uh, that's, you're going to see that a little bit later, and perhaps that theory is true. Okay, starting in Luke 6.37. Do not judge, or you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a divine scale that we don't think about very much and we don't like it because it holds us in accountability. The divine scale works like this. The same measure of forgiveness you give to other people is the measure that God gives you. If you really think about this, if you begin to dwell on this in your mind, you'll hope that people wrong you. Because it gives you an opportunity to forgive them and, in essence, gives God the opportunity to forgive you more. You will hope for the opportunity to show forgiveness because the same measure in your lifetime that you measure forgiveness out to others, God measures it out to you. Think about this in terms of cooking. Okay, If what you need is sugar and somebody says, I give you as much sugar as you give flour to other people. If you use a teaspoon to measure out your flour, giving it to other people, you can only expect a teaspoon coming back to you from God. I don't know about you, but I want the dump truck, not the teaspoon. Okay? And this is a divine principle. It's in the Word. It's in the Word in lots of places. I just don't want it to belabor the point. I'm going to do that anyway, but I don't want to do it unnecessarily so. So, keep in mind, whenever we're dealing with this term of forgiveness, departing from something, allowing something to expire, keeping it no longer, not allowing it to hinder you, or laying it aside, letting it alone, omitting it, or yielding it up to God, that to the extent that you do that to others in your life is the same extent that God will do it to you in your life. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? That means if you turn this verse around, if you refuse to forgive others, if you use very little measure of forgiveness in others, God will withhold His forgiveness from you. Isn't that scary? Think about that but they wronged me, they hurt me. There's lots and lots of parables that we could cover and some that we will. You wronged and hurt God. How is it that we can be forgiven and then run go choke somebody that has wronged us? We all do it. I mean, the, the, the God's honest truth is we all do it. It's a constant process. 
I know in my life, and it's funny, I was telling Matthew earlier today, there's a gentleman that was an elder in a church and some negative things happened in my life. And uh, one of the messages that he taught on that was very good, this before the negativity, was called the treadmill. I know when I'm having a problem with a brother or sister, when I'm laying in bed at night and there's a treadmill going through my mind that I can't get off of, replaying events. Anybody else ever do that? Am I the only one? I tell you, my wife lays down, she goes out, man. She's 30 seconds after her head hits the pillow, she's asleep. Me, it takes sometimes a couple hours of unwinding from the events of the day. But when I notice that a, a certain thought keeps coming back, and I cast it off, it slides off the end of the treadmill, rolls under it, and comes right back up the other side, I know oh, i got some work left to do. When I go to pray, and that happens, when I find myself doing anything during the day, and an unrelated thought about an offense comes up, I know I have work to do. Okay? So, the ironic thing about that is the very man that taught me that was the one that I had the hardest time getting off my own treadmill. Isn't that interesting? God is a wonderful teacher. And He will use many, many tools in your life. And if you wonder why uh, something's difficult in your life, it very well may be that God intended it to shape you. And you can resent the difficulty and thus resent God, or you can embrace it and realize that you're a difficulty to somebody else too. I mean, that's, that's the hard part of this. I can see it real clearly as it relates to other people's lives. But when I have to be the rasp that grates on somebody, I don't like that very much. I want to be the good guy. All of us are one body working together to reach a perfection in Christ. That's All of us are. So it's, it's going to happen. Everybody pretty well got that? Okay, let's turn to Mark 11.20. Let's get another important principle out of the way. Y'all proud of me for staying in the New Testament this long, not getting in the Old Testament? <laughs> That's funny. Okay, Luke 11, starting in verse... I'm sorry, Mark 11, starting in verse 20. It says, In the morning, as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots. I'll tell you about this story really quickly. Jesus is uh, presented Himself before uh, all of Israel as the Passover lamb. Uh, he's made his triumphal entry. They've cried, Hosanna. He's taught in the temple, giving them a chance to inspect him. And he has found no faith. Okay? So walking uh, towards the temple one day, outside of Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree and he curses it because the fig tree was representative of religious Israel. And he cursed it for one reason. It didn't bear the fruit that he expected it to bear. This was an object lesson, not about cursing, not about praying. It was an object lesson that had to do with faith. Now, the apostles are back on their way into the temple. I'm sorry, uh, up to the city, towards the temple. And uh, we see this. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree you have cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Uh, this because this lesson was about faith. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, the first principle 
we've covered. That's that if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. But here's another one, and it's a little more subtle, but you need to get it. Jesus is teaching about faith and how to move mountains and all kinds of things, and of course that involves prayer. He has to communicate with God. But here's what's a prerequisite for your prayer. If you're standing there praying, he says, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. Why? So that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. The clear implication here is if you want God to move for you, if you want the mountain to be moved, when you're praying first, you have to have forgiven everyone. You can't have unforgiveness in your heart or you won't see the mountain move. Do you all get that? Do you understand where that's coming from? This, uh, a theologian commented on, and I don't even remember what century. I know that he was German, and his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think he was a contemporary of Luther, but what difference does it make? Some man of God somewhere once said this, and this is important. He said, if you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you have effectively built a ceiling between you and God. Nothing could be truer. You cannot have aught with a neighbor and has clear communication with God. It can't work that way. It does not work that way. Because the very moment that you go to pray to God, and you realize that you have that in your heart, you have to, according to the Word, get it out of your heart before God will move. I mean, that's what this says. It says it not just in this place, in various other ways. I just That's not my point this morning to prove, or I would do that. But I want you to get that in your heart. To see God move in your life first, You have to be clear from unforgiveness and bitter roots towards other people. I have prayed for lots and lots of people to get baptized in the Holy Ghost. Lots. I don't know. We're probably in the thousands at this point in in our lives. And only one time, just once, in all of those times, did I not see somebody get baptized in the Holy Ghost right then and speak in other tongues. And now that I look back on it, I can see that I was totally spinning my wheels because there were serious issues of unforgiveness that were never met, that were never admitted to or repented from. Now, I believe that that person's coming out of that, but God could not, would not bless that person in that regard because they were hanging on to something that God can't bless. This is the idea where the Bible says, no flesh can abide in my presence. You know, he can't. God is a holy God. You and yourself are not holy, but you're credited with holiness under certain conditions. And one is, you've been forgiven and you must forgive. Okay? Uh, Y'all with me so far? A couple more commands about forgiveness, then we're going to get to the more controversial stuff. Uh, Can you all hang in there with me for a few more scriptures? Okay, in Ephesians, giants eat peas and carrots. Great and exhausted, Preston Coles, General Electric Power Company, However you want to think about getting to this scripture. In Ephesians, starting in the fourth chapter, which in the Thompson chain is on page 1300. Look at the 32nd verse. In the 32nd verse, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be kind, be compassionate, forgiving one another, as in Christ, God has forgiven you. Now, that's really clear that the apostle understood the words of Jesus and was applying it to the church. And he doesn't just do it there. He does it in Colossians 3.13 and various other places. He says, be kind, be compassionate, forgive just as Christ forgave you. 
This is not all that different than Ephesians 5.1 that simply says, hey, I want you to be an imitator of God. You can't be an imitator of God if you don't forgive people. God's already forgiven you. It's the first thing that He did that brought you into His presence. How can you be imitating Him and not do that? Is it fair to say that the New Testament tells us in many different ways that you have to forgive and that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven? Is there anybody here that doubts that at this point? Okay, then we'll lay aside... Uh, you know, I told you there were 140 scriptures that deal with forgiveness in one form or the other. It would be painful if I went through all 140, wouldn't it? So we can stop with this six or ten or how many ever it's been and move on to the next point, okay? To be forgiven, you must forgive. To have God move on your behalf, you cannot have aught between you and a brother. If you don't remember that any other way, just remember to be forgiven, I must forgive. And if I build a wall between my neighbor and I, I have built a ceiling between me and God. Okay? Remember those two things, you'll do good. All right, now, into some more controversial stuff. Are there conditions for forgiveness? I mean, God Himself has conditions on forgiveness, doesn't He? He says, you've got to forgive if you want to be forgiven. Doesn't He? That's a condition. What else is conditional upon forgiveness of sins? When you're lost, what do you have to do to receive forgiveness? Accept Jesus and repent. Repent and be forgiven. Repent that times of refreshing may come on you. So here's the real question. Since God requires you to repent before He forgives you, since um, God requires you to forgive other people uh, to stay in His forgiveness, are you required to require others to repent before you forgive them? Deep thoughts, huh? Does somebody have to acknowledge that they were wrong? Do they have to turn from their wrongdoing before you forgive them? Well, there's a couple of scriptures that are about this that are really interesting. And I want to tell you right up front. If you say, yes, somebody has to repent before you forgive them, that is true in certain scenarios. That will shock some of you, I know. If you say, no, no, you do not have to repent to receive forgiveness from another person. You would be true in certain scenarios. So we better figure out what they are and what the difference is. Because you'll get yourself in a world of hurt if you misapply these. If I wait for lost people out there, indeed even if I wait for some of my brothers and sisters to acknowledge that they've wronged me and repent before I forgive them, then I've got a bitter root growing up in me coming to maturity and defiling many people. Okay? If, if I apply that standard wrongly. But if as a church I don't require repentance before I depart from a thing, allow it to expire, keep it no longer, or permit, or allow it not to hinder me, or lay it aside, then there's, there's other problems. There are some things... Let me lay this foundation really quickly, and then we're going to get in the Word before I muddle this issue so badly that you don't know what I'm talking about. Can a Christian commit physical violence? Yes. There are situations... What would your first reaction think, though? Christians don't commit physical violence normally. In your Christian walk, somebody slaps you, what are you supposed to do? What are the circumstances in which a Christian can commit physical violence, though? If you're a soldier and you're working for a God-ordained authority, your nation, and your nation sends you to war, are you sinning if you shoot at somebody? No. Men of God have wrestled with this, though, haven't they? I mean... Even Sergeant York, that black and white TV show, they wrestled with this. Joshua. If somebody slapped Joshua's face, 
It would be a godly thing for Joshua to turn the other cheek. But if God has said, I want you to go in and hamstring all the oxen, kill all the men, the women, and the children, as God did tell Joshua to do, as a nation in national warfare, because he was dispossessing another nation, then of course it's not wrong, because God said to do it, right? So we can acknowledge that there's a difference between personal behavior in Christ and behavior as part of a corporate entity. Nations are treated differently than individuals, but there's a problem with that. Individuals make up nations, and nations are made of individuals. So let me see if we can draw some lines here that will help you. Okay, Matthew 18. Let's start there. What does everybody know that Matthew 18 is about? I talk about it all the time. What important thing is found in Matthew 18? Guidelines for church discipline. Uh, Matthew 18, incidentally, in the Thompson chain, is on page 10,091. Guidelines for church discipline. Starting in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now we don't just have one person involved with another person. We have two or three with you going to another brother. We've had to elevate this from a regional dispute to a national dispute, if you will. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Can you just lay aside this matter? Not at all. He said there is a real consequence for refusing to listen to the brother, the two to three brothers, and then the whole church. You have to treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Well, how on earth do you balance that out in your life? Well, let me start, and we're going to cover this in three or four different ways, but let me start by saying it takes a very serious matter to need to rise to the level of church discipline and church sanction. There's an example. It's in Corinthians 5. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to go back to Matthew 18, so keep your finger there. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see an example of a kind of thing that one brother goes, then two or three brothers goes, then it comes before the whole church, then they have to treat this guy as a pagan or a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. This is page 1269 on the Thompson chain. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. In this case, the church could not just turn a blind eye, lay this aside, allow the matter to die, or just move on. It is required that something happen before they just let this go as a church. Now, I'm not telling you as individuals that they don't forgive this guy, but as a church, 
This was something that required action. Why? Because it would defile the whole church. Now, I'll tell you, you don't see this happen very often. How many of you have been in church services and at any time in your life where you heard the church say, I've tried to work this out personally. I've tried to work this out with several brothers. I'm bringing it before all of you. Brother so-and-so is in adultery and will not stop. And I'm sorry, we're going to have to treat him just like we would anybody who is lost. We're going to pray right now and remove the church's covering of protection from him in the spiritual realm in the hope that as he's kicked around by the world and by the devil's power, he come back with a repentant heart. How many times have you ever heard that? I mean, it doesn't happen, does it? I remember in my own life, uh, I was familiar with a couple that was in adultery and it caused a family member of mine such problems that we sat in church and the pastor knew it. She wrote him a letter. said, how is it the things that you say could be true? And yet so-and-so and so-and-so were on the first row every day and they've been in adultery together for years and you do nothing about it. That, that kept a family member of mine from growing in the Lord as she should because the pastor of the church didn't act like a pastor is supposed to act. So are there conditions in which you withhold, you don't completely lay aside a matter until there's repentance? Sure, but it's matters of church discipline. Where in the Lord's Prayer? In Matthew or in Luke? Where on that scale of forgiveness? In Matthew 7 or in Luke 7? Where in Ephesians or Colossians did you ever hear that somebody had to repent before you forgave them? You didn't. What you heard was, forgive or you won't be forgiven. You, you've been forgiven, forgive. You heard those statements over and over and over. But here we see a statement where forgiveness seems to be contingent on something. So what's the difference? As individuals, when somebody wrongs you, you do not have a choice but to forgive them. But when a matter rises to the level that the apostles in a church uh, have to be consulted, the pastors have to be consulted, and it is ongoing habitual sin, it has to be repented of before the church can just lay it aside. Does that bring a little more clarity to this Scripture? As an individual, if you don't lay it aside, though, what does it do? It builds a ceiling between you and God. As a church, if you lay it aside when you shouldn't, it builds a ceiling between you and God. See, the church can't be cowardice. The church has to stand up and do what the Word says. But as an individual, you have to forgive because you've been forgiven. Otherwise, how would Romans 12 be true? Where he tells you, be kind, be compassionate, do all these things. Forgive those who persecute you. When somebody curses you, bless them. Why didn't he say, unless they won't repent from it? As an individual, you must always forgive. As a governmental authority in the body of Christ, sometimes you must withhold forgiveness. Why? Because if they refuse to repent, God's not forgiving them and you are standing as God's authority on earth projecting that. Well, that's a complicated subject, isn't it? But here's what you really need to get from that. It's not okay for you as an individual to ever not forgive. Not okay. Not under any circumstances. When Matthew 18 implies, or Luke 17 implies a scenario where somebody has to repent before you forgive them, he's talking about church discipline. It's the same kind of glaring difference in role that there is about physical violence. Christians are not physically violent unless they're a part of an army for uh, a nation that God has said, I'd like America to go with Iraq. 
then you have to be physically violent. But you're doing it as a member of a government God-ordained, not one individual to another. There's a real difference there. Before we move on from this, turn with me to Luke. I'm sorry, let's go back to Matthew 18. Let me read you a parable real quick. Ask. Do it loudly so we get it. If um, if you're an individual and you have fought with another brother, not withholding forgiveness, but don't you have a responsibility to talk to that brother? Yeah. Yeah. In fact... Here, here's how that goes. Okay? I mean, we just read this. The question was, if not withholding forgiveness, but don't you have a responsibility to go and speak with the brother? How did Matthew just say to handle it? You go with one brother. If you can't settle it, then you go with two or three. If you can't settle it then, and here's the key, it has to be the judgment of everybody there that it needs to go before the church, then it does. Otherwise, every time two women got in a fight over the color of the carpet, and I'm sorry if that seems demeaning, it's just the first thing that came to mind, you would have be people being turned over to the devil. That's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. The truth is, sometimes, most of the time, 99% of the time, it ought to die immediately when one brother goes to the other and it doesn't require repentance. It doesn't require it at all. You have an obligation to voice it. They don't have, it doesn't matter whether they accept it. You should forgive them then because you've been freely forgiven. But if it's a habitual sin that is ongoing every day, or habitual, and it affects the church, then it might be the judgment of the church that has to be dealt with publicly. There's a real difference between that and the kind of disputes that you usually think of as unforgiveness. I'll give you an example. If somebody were molesting a child in this church, there would be one person go to them first. Then Matthew and I would go. If we didn't bring a change here, not only would we involve physical authorities and might do that from the beginning, but we would bring it before the entire church. And that would be prayed over, and that person would be disfellowshipped until repentance occurred in their life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love them. doesn't mean as an individual you don't have to forgive them. You do. But you cannot lay aside the consequence for that sin and carry on as a church. You can't. I don't want to get into every possible scenario there because these get pretty complicated. The question that was asked, though, I'm going to cover several more times through the Scripture as we go because it's important. Look at this. Peter hears that. The church is not really formed yet. The synagogue is the forerunner. And the synagogue had very strict rules for how you settled disputes. It either agreed with the law or it didn't agree with the law, and usually somebody got stoned. Okay? Now, the church was going to be a lot different, though. Peter hears this, and he goes, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense, Lord. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 18 on page 1091. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Is seven times enough? Up to seven times? This is one of those phrases in the Bible, and you'll see it again in Luke, where it literally does not mean seven times. It's kind of like this. If uh, Cassidy and I are talking, and I said, man, every time Jennifer cooks the beans, she burns them. I mean, she could do it a million times a day, and she'd still burn them. I don't literally mean a million times. I mean some innumerable times. It's a, Jesus is not exaggerating. He's using an expression to explain that as often as this occurs, this happens. Okay? Does that make sense to you? That's why sometimes you see 70 times 7, others 77 times, those kind of things. I tell you, not 7 times, but 70 times 7. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me. He begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Just so that you know as we're going through this, you are that servant. You were the one that owed the king a great debt and could not pay it, some 10,000 talents. Could not pay it. And you said, Lord, I'll pay you back, but I, I mean, I can't. And he says, it's all right. I forgive you. Let it go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a relatively minuscule amount of money compared to what he had been forgiven. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. And then you can read the rest of that. Actually, it ends like this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now, it's true that in this parable it's implied that the brother wanted forgiveness, that he wanted to repent. But that last statement is not contingent upon that. If you don't forgive your brothers, God will not forgive you. It really doesn't matter whether they want your forgiveness or not. Otherwise, all of the other vast majority of Scripture that talks about forgiveness would be invalid. So, in matters of church discipline, there are times that a church will withhold laying aside of consequence until a matter is resolved. In your personal life, if you want God to hear your prayer, if you want uh, God to forgive you, you have to freely forgive with no conditions. Now, what does that mean, freely forgive with no conditions? If uh, somebody's a thief and they're stealing from you constantly and you forgive them, does that mean that they should have control of the checkbook register in your house? No, to forgive means exactly what's here. To depart from it. Don't dwell on that issue. Move on from it. What's next? To allow it to expire. Allow that to die. Don't let it be an ongoing issue between you. When you forgive, it's dead. No longer there. To keep no longer means you're not retaining it for a later argument. You're not gunny-sacking it going, yeah, but you've always been a thief. Ten years ago, you stole. Okay? To permit or allow it not to hinder you. You're forgiving him so that every time you see this person, you don't have a wall between you and God. You're allowing it to die. To lay aside, let alone omit or yield up a thing. Nowhere in there does it talk about totally forgetting that it ever happened. It, basically, forgiveness in Christianity is to remove the consequence of it. Okay? Meaning that you don't hold it against that person. doesn't mean you lose all sound judgment. If somebody's hurt your kid, I don't care what happened in their life that you have forgiven them, you'd be very careful with them around your kids. If somebody has got an ongoing theft problem and then you forgive them and uh, you have to interact with them about money, you'd be wise. Okay? That by, that's forgiveness, in fact, people have always said, to forgive is to forget. God takes your sin, He puts it as far as the west is from the east, and He forgets about it. Then why a thousand years after Israel commits a sin is He reminding the nation that they committed that sin? You know, I understand the concept, and the concept is a good one. You're to act like it never happened. But the reality is, 
It did happen. Uh, for instance, there are certain things that you can do that I forgive you for, but you're going to go to jail. There's a consequence for it. Okay? I can forgive you and there still be some consequence, but I'm not holding it against you. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Moving on from here, I wanted to turn to Luke 17. And while you're on your way to Luke, do you remember the instance in Corinthians? The sexually immoral man that is sleeping with his mother-in-law. What did they do? They met as a church and they turned this man over to Satan and disfellowshipped him. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? You think, my God, how could any church do that? Doesn't that seem so cruel, so unmerciful? In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11, which don't turn there, we're going to be in Luke. I'm just going to tell you. Paul says, oh, wow. He's repented. That's fantastic. The, um, the penalty inflicted on him by the majority of you is sufficient for him. Receive this man back so that the devil might not outwit you. Now, why would he say that? The guy had repented and he's telling them now you must forgive him and do it as a church. Otherwise, the devil will outwit you. Because once that guy repented, he had no more problem between he and God. Didn't matter what he had done, God had forgiven him. If they then harbored unforgiveness, then the devil had a tool in their life. See, this is the difference between individuals and a church. Okay? They had to forgive him. Okay, so Luke 17. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Guys, we cannot interact with each other on any kind of personal level. We can't have a sincere love for one another and interact and things not come through us that cause people to sin. It's going to happen. If you and I spend a week together, at some point during the week, I'm going to do something you don't like, probably in the first ten minutes, but it's going to happen. Is that got to be the end of our relationship? No, it really doesn't. In fact, in Christ, you just realize it's bound to come, and I wished it hadn't come through you, but it did. Now let's deal with it. If your brother sins, rebuke him. (laughs) If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. This is the scripture that caused so much concern uh, in the question that I got earlier in the week. How is it that sometimes you're required to forgive and repentance isn't mentioned, and other times repentance is mentioned as a condition? This is where I see those chapters lining up perfectly. Matthew 7 talks about judgment in the same measure. Luke 7 talks about judgment in the same measure. Matthew 18 talks about church discipline, and I believe Luke 17 is talking about church discipline. Church discipline requires forgiveness. I mean, requires repentance for forgiveness because it's the government of the church. Let me say this too. It's best if somebody comes to you and says, man, I've got a problem with you. What does it really mean to repent? Turn from Do you really want to persist in doing whatever it is that caused him a problem? Even if it wasn't sin. Let's just say for a minute, two well-meaning people both got really offended at each other and were angry. Does it require one to acknowledge that they were wrong to repent? Not at all. Does it require the other one to acknowledge, well, I was wrong and this was sin to repent? That's not what repentance is. You can repent from something that wasn't even wrong. You can look and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I can see that this has caused a problem. I'm going to repent from it. I repent to you. 
I'm going to turn from this. I'm going to make sure in our relationship this doesn't happen again. So it's not always as hard to repent as you might think. When you think of repentance, we think of it in the biblical sense between you and God. I've sinned before you. I'm turning from that sin. You can repent from all kinds of actions. Sometimes repent in the Bible means to change your mind. Brad, I thought this was the best way to deal with you. I'm going to repent from that and deal with you differently because I can see that the results weren't what we wanted. Guys, that ought to make it a lot easier for you. The truth is, we're going to look at an example. We're going to close with it here later where two people were both a little bit in sin, but their intentions were perfect. I mean, good intentions, a little bit in sin. Neither one ever acknowledged that they were in sin. And God used it for something that was great because they repented from what was wrong. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of a model for us. Okay, so y'all got church discipline down. And we might be here saying, well, that's great. Forgive or I won't be forgiven. Forgive or my prayers are hindered. But how do I go about this? You know, how do you really lay aside something that has wounded you? How do you do that? Can you think of a single individual in all of the Bible besides Jesus that was wronged more than Joseph? I mean, think about Joseph. This is a young man whose great crime in life was that his father loved him. Was that Joseph's fault that his father loved him? Mm -mm. What was his second greatest crime? He did what his father told him to do. I want you to go out with the guys. I want you to come back and report to me what they've done. Was that a great crime? He did what his father told him to do. Was it offensive? Sure. It would be offensive to me if I was one of the brothers he was ratting on. Okay? He was wronged in every way. What did they do to him? Threw him in a hole. Gave him up for dead. Went back and told the parents he's dead. Then they sold him into slavery. Then he's falsely accused of rape. Then he's put in jail for something that he didn't do. While he's in jail, he's forgotten about Then he's put before Pharaoh and he's exalted to the highest place in the land. We say, oh, that's great. Look what happened to Joseph. And we forget about all the years of injustice in between. Is there anybody, could you have any deeper hurt in your life than 11, I'm sorry, 10 of your brothers throw you in a hole, leave you for dead, go back, tell father you're dead, watch you be sold into slavery, knowing that bad things would await you? Could could there be anything really worse than that, you think? Maybe we could imagine some because of Fox News and the stuff that we see on there. But the idea of this is really bad. Okay? Well, turn with me to Genesis 50. The first time in the Bible the word forgive ever comes up. It really surprised me. It took 50 chapters for it to give up, to, for it to come up. But isn't it fitting? Isn't it fitting that the first time we really learn about forgiveness in the Bible, the first real object lesson that has to do with forgiveness in the Bible, comes from the man whose name meant Savior. Zaphonoth Penea, Savior of the world. The guy who is a shadowing type of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? This guy who had been wronged by his brothers but elevated by God is now going to teach us about forgiveness. Sounds a lot like Jesus who we're supposed to imitate, doesn't it? In verse... Uh, I don't know, maybe 15... When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? Isn't that interesting? What if? They've been in Egypt for a while with Joseph. He hadn't shown any grudge against them. He's been kind to them. But what if? What if they'll get you in trouble an awful lot? We need to deal with one another and what has happened. Not what 
might happen, not what you thought could have happened, but what happened. Uh, Matthew and I were one time at his uncle's house, and we were boisterous young men and unsaved, both of us, and we shot some Roman candles uh, and those things that shoot fireballs out. Yeah, Roman candles and bottle rockets. Out of one doorway of a house, across a gully, into another neighbor's carport. Now, I know that just, you know, y'all are all shocked, right? Yeah, we thought it was hilarious. And a very mad father came over because his kids were playing in the carport and we didn't know it. And uh, he was really pretty angry, right? There was a... there was a guy there with us. There was a bunch of firemen in this house with us. Isn't that funny? Firemen while we're doing this. They were drinking beer and watching football. And a guy said one of the most profound things. This father standing at the door yelling at the top of his lungs at Matthew and I and appealing to this crowd that was there. You know, they shot these bottle rockets over there and my kids were there and there was these Roman candles and my kids could have been hurt. And Big John, one of the firemen, looked right at the guy and said, they missed your kids. What else do you want? Now, I realize how angering that would be to me as a father. But he did have his finger on the real point. Yes, it was bad. It was horrible. But they did miss the kids. Yeah, something horrible could have happened. It didn't. So many times we are locked in mortal combat with people over what might have happened and God didn't allow it to happen. Let's move on. You know? Yeah, I realize when I did that it was horrible. But in the grand scope of things, isn't this pretty small? Not like anybody died. Let's just move on. There's a lot of attitudes you could have that would really help you. These guys are worried about Joseph. What if? Now, I know the character of Joseph, and so do you. Is there any chance Joseph has a grudge? No, but they're worried about something. They're offended at something that hasn't even occurred yet. It's amazing when you dig deep into arguments that almost always revolve around, well, I know you said this, but you meant this. Really? And what's funny is you'll have two people there both swearing that either they're not remembering the right words or they meant something different by it. Well, if that's the case, let's go ahead and reestablish love for one another and say, well, what should I have said or what did I, should I have meant? And then you move on. Not a big deal. Happens all the time. If in sales I had uh, a dollar for every time I've had to say, I'm sorry, I said that poorly. What I meant to say was, because it's conflict resolution. You know, that's forgetting about that. Okay. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. Isn't it funny? They're worried about Joseph sinning, and so what do they do? They sin. They sin. Isn't that hilarious? Moses wrote it, but... They are worried that Joseph, who they've wronged greatly, might sin against them, so they're going to sin by lying. (laughs) This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Boy, isn't that beautiful? When their message came to Joseph, he wept. These guys concoct a lie. Say, their daddy didn't say this to them. He's already dead. But when they find out he's dead, they say, oh, this is what we need to do. Let's go tell him daddy said he had to forgive us. Now, what's the reality? Daddy did want him to forgive them, and Joseph really already had. But aside from that, we're going to reaffirm it here. Okay? 
Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Guys, every time you've ever been offended, it doesn't even matter that the person sitting across from you intended to harm you, which is really what you want them to acknowledge. You wanted to hurt me. Let's take Joseph's attitude, even if they did want to hurt you. God's used it for good, hadn't he? Now, the reality is with your brothers and sisters, most of the time, they don't want to hurt you. If they did, they don't want to today. I mean, they can't be Christians if that's the case. Most of the time, we all just get a little too fleshy. You know, maybe we stayed up a little too late, whatever it was, and we bark at one another, and nothing really seriously is meant by it. But boy, we hold on to it. We refuse to depart from it. We won't let it just die. We refuse to let it go by keeping it. We allow it to hinder us. You know, we don't forgive. If you could just take the attitude, even if they did mean to harm me, God's used it for good. That one phrase has helped me so much in my life. There are some people that really set out to knock my head off of my shoulders in a spiritual sense in my life. But you know what? God's used every bit of it for good. So that allows me to be able to forgive them. Even if they wanted to hurt me. It's okay. They don't know any better. They will get better at it hopefully. If not, there's a just judge. But that's not mine. So this whole idea of church discipline and personal discipline, think about it this way. As an individual, you forgive and pass it on to the higher authority. I forgive you for your sexual immorality, but the church might think about this a little differently. When the church forgives, they pass it on to a higher authority. Say, hey, we forgive. It looks like you've repented. It's now between you and God. <laughs> Each time you pass it on to the higher authority. If you're in a household, if you're a child, and you don't know how to forgive somebody, take it to your parents. Let them show you how to forgive. If your wife, take it to the husband. If your husband, take it to Jesus. As you move up that line, what it does is it releases you from the burden. It could be that I think Mandy's got an ongoing serious problem. I don't know it, but I just think she doesn't like me very much. Okay? I can let that eat away at me. Or I could look at Mandy and say, hey, I love you, sweetie. I can try to work it out and say, I didn't, I don't know what I did, but I'm sorry. And if I really think Mandy's not admitting to it, but it's back there somewhere, the easiest thing for me to do is pass it on to the higher authority. Say, Jesus, I've tried to work it out. I still am going to, but I need you to work on that. You know, and it resolves problems. And whatever somebody means for your harm, God will use for good. You ready for the next example? Turn to Joshua. This is the one I had hoped to get to. And I did, so. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. We're going to be in the 22nd chapter of Joshua. I told you I couldn't stay out of the Old Testament. In the OT. In the 22nd chapter of Joshua. How do we get these thoughts out of our minds? How do you get off the treadmill? When I'm laying there at, at, in bed at night, how do I really put it out of my mind? How do I refuse to let it hinder me? How do I let it go? Well, the first big tool you have is, even if they meant to harm you, God's using it for good, so let it go. Here's another one, though. This kind of help you understand. In Israel's conquest of the Promised Land, something happened. 
you may not be familiar with the word Transjordanian tribes, but basically what happens is a few of the tribes stay on one side of the Jordan. That's where they want to camp. All the others go to the other side of the Jordan to camp. It's really two half-tribes and a tribe stayed. So we refer to them as three entities, but two of the tribes of Israel are on one side, ten are on the other. God made uh, an agreement with them through Moses. He said, look, it's okay. You can do this. I want you to settle here. But first, you have to go complete the conquest of the rest of the land with your brothers. They did that. So these few that stayed on one side of the Jordan go in. They complete the conquest of all of the land with their brothers. Then they go back and they settle. But there's a natural divider between them. I personally think that this has a lot to do with a first remnant and latter remnant of the Jews and a message there, but that's certainly not what we're teaching on today. What's important is we've got two groups of Israelites with some kind of divide between them. Okay? Starting in chapter 22, verse uh, 10. I forgot. I've got to tell you one more thing before we read 10. Because there's this divider between them, something happens. There is a temple, uh, the tabernacle temple. I should call it a tabernacle, not a temple, but you follow me. A place where there would later be a temple, the tabernacle, where all offerings are supposed to occur. The Word says, not anywhere you want, but in this place the offering must occur. But the Transjordanian tribes, the tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan, are concerned. What if something happens and we can't get there? What if one day our descendants don't like each other? What if, what if, what if? Kind of like the what if of the other brothers. So they build their own altar. And that's where we're going to pick up. Verse 10. When they came to Gilead, these are the Transjordanian tribes, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan and Gilead, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So what do we have happen? We have one group of people built an altar. Another group of people hear about it and say, Oh, buddy, it's on. <laughs> Let's go fight. It's not all that different than arguments happen between Christians. Sometimes there's no opportunity for explanation. I saw this and I'm reacting to it. Don't understand each other's intentions. It really doesn't matter. You saw it. It looks obvious. It's time for war. Okay, that's where they're at. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, with him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. So they sent a representative from all the tribes to go meet. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, to Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says... How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against Him now? Isn't it funny how freely the accusations come without even really finding out what their heart is? They saw one thing outwardly and are accusing them. Isn't that really what happens in all arguments? And when you dig a little deeper, you find out they really weren't that upset with you. Something else happened that day. Or... They were upset, but not about what you thought, or it's some kind of miscommunication. Doesn't that happen all of the time? But boy, we build our fences. Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? What's that? What are they referring to now? They're referring back to a previous sin that all of Israel had committed. They've gunny-sacked. They've kept a record of wrongs. 
They're right there ready to remind him. You're going to sin like this? You're the ones that sinned like that before. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that what happens in arguments though? And my personal favorite. And again, that's not about anybody here. I've done it. We've all done this. This is my personal favorite. I'm not the only one that feels this way. Everybody thinks you're like this. Of course, everybody's not there. Not everybody wants to be quoted in that way. And even if they did say it, they shouldn't have and didn't mean it. But we want to bolster our argument because we are going to force somebody to see it. All of us do it. I do it. I wish we didn't. It's easy for me if I'm listening to somebody else go, ah, 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 don't do that. But then when it comes my turn, you know, you stiff-necked, rebellious people, everybody believes you're like this, you know. <laughs> Whatever we can do to make ourselves more authoritative, right? Okay, so that's, uh, they said uh, the sin of pure. What verse are we in? 17. Was not the sin of pure enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? We never really got over that previous sin. And now you're sinning again? You're going to get us all in trouble. What's wrong with you? (laughs) It's funny because it happens. If you rebel against the Lord today... Tomorrow, he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. You're going to screw it up for all of us. (laughs) I mean, isn't that right? If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zeruah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for a sin. Listen to what we've done. We've seen, man, there's an altar there. And true enough, this is where they're a little bit wrong. There's not supposed to be an altar there. Okay? But we hadn't talked about it, not anything. We've gotten ready. We've roused all Israel to war. And we've gone and said... You remember when this sin happened? You remember when that sin happened? You're causing it again. It's your fault. It's going to happen to all of us. And it's you. How can you rebel against God like this? How many times have you entered into a conversation sure you were right? Certain you were right? Not prepared for anything but war? How many times? How many times have you been cocked waiting for somebody else that you knew was coming for war and instead of being peace, instead of sitting down talking about it, you were ready to hammer them for war? We're always so concerned with being right. God's concerned with us being reconciled. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord or to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord Himself call us into account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours. Let me get this out of the way real quick. First, one sees something that no doubt is wrong. God said don't do it. But they assign immediate bad motives They rush in with a list of a record of wrongs and are ready for war. The other responds initially in the right way. says, oh no, look, I'm sorry we didn't make this clear. Let God know, He knows, and now let all Israel know this was our heart. This was our intention. Okay, that is the right way to handle that. But listen, why did they build the altar? 
Why does it say they built the altar? No, we did it for fear. Someday, your descendants might say to ours. Israel was right there looking at the Transjordanian tribes going, <laughs> they can't be doing this for godly reasons, let's go get them. The reason that, they, that the Transjordanian tribes did it was because they were looking there going, I know they're going to be ungodly in the future, I know it. They caused their own argument. So often, if we could just assign to one another godly attributes, if we could say, oh no, I know Brad wouldn't do that. He's a Christian. I know Judah wouldn't do that. He's a Christian. If they could look and go, well, Eric may have said that, but I know that's not what he meant. He's a Christian. If you could think better of the other person, most arguments would stop right there. But when we're willing immediately to assume before it even happens that somebody's behavior is going to be ungodly, how unfair is that? And we do it all the time and we use wisdom as the excuse. Well, every time I've talked to Judah, he's acted like that. So I knew before we even talked this time, he was going to act like that. Not fair. What happens to a new creation in Christ? What happens to love keeps no record of wrongs? We can't gunny sack in the kingdom. It happens all the time. Okay, so they say, oh, no, 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 no. God's our witness and now all Israel is. We only did this because we were scared you would be ungodly. Uh, what you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 25, the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. This is what their fear was, that uh, Israel would make them stop fearing the Lord. This is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between you and us and the generations that follow, that we will worship Yahweh at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us, our descendants will answer. Look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders in the communities, the heads of the clans of Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and blah, 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 all of these guys sit down and this is what they decide in verse 34. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. I want you to understand something. This argument occurred because both people assumed ungodly intentions on the other's part. Both parties were wrong in some regard. One rushed in for war. The other did something totally out of fear that is really... In all honesty, wrong. There weren't, this altar wasn't supposed to be there, and later Israel does fall into idolatry over it. Okay, But their intentions were right. If either of these guys had sat and looked and said, even if they do mean this badly, God will use it for good. If either of these had looked and said, oh, these guys just finished fighting a big war with us, they would never do something that would sin. If either gave the other the benefit of the doubt, there would have been no argument. But here's the important thing. God allowed both to sin to cause them to enter into this for a specific reason. He wanted an altar. He wanted a monument 
to the fact that these two had had conflict and decided, what did they call it? God is a witness between us. The Lord, He's our God. What you find when you argue with a Christian brother, if it is God-ordained, not that you didn't sin, both of you sinned, but what you find God brings out of that is you now have a memorial stone. Wait a minute. We've had arguments before. God was God over that. I remember now. I thought you wanted to do something bad, but you really didn't. You thought I wanted to do something bad, but we really didn't. Look, that thing can be like a memorial stone or an altar saying, God's our God. We're going to handle this the right way. I say all that to say, here's the principle with forgiveness. Yes, you have to forgive people. It does not require their repentance. You have to forgive. Secondly, when you're locked in an argument and you're tempted to withhold unforgiveness, you need to realize, you need to ascribe to the other one good intentions. I think you meant my best, but even if you didn't, God's meant it for my best. Then, moving on, when you have gotten this forgiveness, how do you get off the treadmill? You allow that event just to be a witness that God is both of your gods. You, you don't allow it to divide you. You lay aside the differences and come to the final conclusion. The way I like to resolve conflicts, for instance, let's say that Diana and Darnell were having an argument, is after you both express love for one another, after we've covered the issue, then you hug, you refuse to talk about it again except in a positive light. And you know what? Pretty soon it will become a positive thing. You don't mention how badly it hurt anymore. You mention what you got good out of it. That was a time when I really saw somebody does love me because I would have got up and walked out if they didn't or whatever you can that's positive in it. How do you get off the treadmill? You get off the treadmill by knowing, first off, that you separate yourself from God if you don't. Secondly, God won't move on your behalf because you've built a wall between your brother and you and a ceiling between you and God. Thirdly, you realize that God Himself means it for your good. He takes every sinful action and works it out for your good. Lastly, you ascribe to each other godly attributes, even if the other person's not acting godly. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Let God be the judge between you. If something cannot be worked out because there is no repentance, because it is an ongoing thing, on and on and on, perhaps it needs to be taken before the church. But remember, repentance is not an acknowledgement that you were right and they were wrong. Repentance means to turn from a thing. They haven't repented. I can't forgive them. Oh, really? They're doing the exact same thing to you today that they did the other day? No, they just never admitted they were wrong and I'm mad. Well, you've got the problem, not them. See, sometimes we, we think repentance means them acknowledge they were wrong and you were right. Christians should all be willing to do that. You should be fighting to do that. No, no, I was wrong. No, really, I was wrong. No, really, I was wrong. That's how it should go. But even if it doesn't, that's not how repentance occurs. Repentance means you stop doing whatever caused such a problem. Okay, y'all stand up. I want to read something else to you and then we're going to close. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15 is a very compelling reason why you should be motivated to forgive. It says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Here's the reality. Unforgiveness affects you more than the other person. See, I found out several times in my life somebody had been mad at me for years and I didn't even know it. So it didn't bother me a bit before they told me. But evidently it had been growing in them and causing them problems. 
If you can't forgive somebody for any other reason, if you can't lay it aside for any other reason, lay it aside for your own benefit so that it doesn't defile you. And know this, bitter roots never just defile you. That verse says, grow up and defile many. Because when you have a bitter root in you, you pass it along to everybody you're around. This, you know, when this really gets full grown, people that have never met somebody else, I'm using my boy as an example because it's silly. Somebody never met Judah, but they have met five other people that have talked negatively about Judah, have a problem with Judah before they even met him. You know, there's some people in my life that I've never even met, but because of others' description of them, because there's a bitter root in the other person that's talking about it, I have to work not to not like them, and I never met them. That's wrong. It's wrong. It's not godly behavior. Forgive freely. You've been forgiven. If there's a matter of church discipline, you need to weigh first, is this really something that needs to rise to that level, or am I making a mountain out of a molehill? You have an obligation to go and work it out with the brother. You have an obligation to air that. And then, in that setting, you both have an obligation to forgive each other. It's habitual, ongoing sin that is unrepentant in one area that you have an obligation to bring before the church. That's really different than somebody hurting your feelings. Okay? Y'all all understand that? I probably told you more than you wanted to know, but hopefully, if nothing else comes away from this, you'll be quick to forgive because I need that. All right, let's pray.